This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So how many people here actually watched Roseanne? Okay, moving on. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Jaracuse edition. I'm Shane Harris, not native French speaker. Speak to me in French, Jaracuse. Shane. Jaracuse souffle. Clemenceau. <laughs> you look very Paris. good in a beret. Pompidou. <laughs> Coquavin. Wait, can I tell you where though? Do you remember when I was doing something? Wasn't I doing something in a French accent? Yes. One episode four. So we got, got somebody tweeted at me. I already DM me one or the other. Uh, that uh, his wife is a native French speaker, and he said your accent is excellent. It's excellent. This just adds to my body of, uh, of evidence that Shane Harris would be a phenomenal spy. I would totally be such a good spy, you guys. <laughs> I tell people this all the time. My job is basically like being a spy. It is. I have to persuade you to tell me things that could get you in a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And you're really good at it. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm here in the jungle studio with my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Shane. Only one among you is a spy. Do you like being called a spy? I just don't think it's like a, an accurate descriptor. Spy lawyer. Like a Close lawyer. Lawyer's like spy. a lot more paperwork. Why didn't James spy. Bond like have like a lawyer character? Like there was a Q and an M. Like why not the L? <laughs> Maybe in subsequent. This, this is the movie I think everybody wants right? to see. It's subsequent editions. It's going to be like, hello, L. Because <laughs> <laughs> then James Bond wouldn't have done anything. <laughs> James Bond needs to get some clearance before he goes on his next operation. Just James Bond responding to memos that are like, mm. right, exactly. Like, it's only like, oh, hold on one second before I shoot you. I have to clear It would be like James Bond meets Brazil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. On the podcast this week, President Trump told Jeff Sessions that he should not recuse himself. No, recuse. <laughs> from the the Russian investigation. Trump feuds with the Homeland Security Secretary as the administration separates children from their families at the U.S. border with Mexico. Can we put feuds in air quotes, Feuds, yeah. Not really feuding. That would would assume that both of them were yelling. He's more just like berating her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And investigators determined that Russia was the source of a missile that shot down a Malaysian airliner in 2014. No shit, Sherlock. No shit. Um, all right, let's start with the uh, the Trump uh, sort of the the Trump asking Sessions to recuse. This was a story that broke on Tuesday evening uh, in the New York Times um, that pr- Trump in a meeting at Mar-a-Lago after giving Jeff Sessions the silent treatment for a few days um, told him he shouldn't have recused and pressured him to put himself back in charge of the Russia investigation. And Jeff Sessions, in so many words, tell him told him to go pound sand. I'm just reading from the Times story here. Investigators have pressed current and former White House officials about Mr. Trump's treatment of Mr. Sessions and whether they believe the president was trying to impede the Russian investigation by pressuring him. So, Ben, let me go to you first. We've talked a lot about Trump firing FBI Director James Comey and how that relates to a potential obstruction of justice. We haven't talked as much about Sessions, we've obviously seen the president fulminating about how he says that Sessions never should have recused himself. If he had known that he was going to recuse himself, he never would have appointed him attorney general or nominated him to be attorney general. Um, how important is it, though, that the president said to Sessions directly, you need to unrecuse yourself? So I think like all of these uh, bad acts by the president – Any given one of them is probably not a plausible obstruction of justice case. But the question is, what happens when you take this very long line of presidential actions that are all 
calculated to influence the direction of an investigation that he fears and fears on behalf of his uh, staff, his intimates, his family, and himself. Uh, and I think the question is whether that pattern of activity uh, cumulatively with specific intent to obstruct an investigation constitutes an obstruction of justice, either for purposes of the statute or just for purposes of a reasonable member of Congress thinking about abuse of power under the impeachment clauses. And in that context, the idea that the president took specific steps other than tweeting angrily about it to try to get Jeff Sessions, who believed on the advice of career prosecutors that he had to recuse, to undo that decision and seize control of the investigation in order, as Trump has said publicly, to protect him, has got to be significant. And I, um, the only thing that's not shocking about this allegation is that it's completely unsurprising. Yeah, so I I generally agree with Ben. I think there are sort of there are th sort of three different issues, some of which um, you know we talked about earlier today. Um, you know, the first is whether or not Trump should have hired Jeff Sessions, whether Jeff Sessions should have advised the president that he was likely to be required to recuse, which sort of seems to be the the crux of what the president is so uh, upset about, and also kind of the nature of Trey Gowdy's uh, criticism. Uh, that's kind of one issue. Uh, I, I think there's reasonable arguments on either side. Uh, once Sessions is actually nominated and, and once he's confirmed, then you have the question of should Jeff Sessions have recused? The answer there is unequivocally yes. Yes on the substance. Yes on 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 the uh, because it's the advice of career prosecutors. Like this is not a close call. This is not a thing in which, well, he should have just toughed it out and the issue would have gone away. He clearly made not just the correct decision, but the required decision. Then you get into the third question, which the attorney general having recused himself is it appropriate for the president of the United States to then place pressure on him to unrecuse himself? Plainly, this is wrong. Plainly, this is obstructive, whether or not it actually qualifies on its own sort of as part of the, the legal definition. And so I, I don't even think it's a it's a close call, because in this case, Unlike with Comey, where, where Trump is sort of putting up some some different motivations and trying to pretend as though, oh, it's about this Rosenstein memo. Trump is being just completely open about what he's doing and why. And it's on something that is so plainly uh, inappropriate. So I think w one of the things I did find striking about the New York Times story is the reporting they had on Trump, you know, telling other people at the time that he needed someone loyal to him overseeing this investigation. That's what's so telling is, as, as Susan was saying, the nakedness of it. Here's my question for you legal eagles. Had Sessions listened to the advice of the professionals in the Justice Department and decided, no, nah, I'm not going to recuse him myself? Or had he recused himself and then done what Trump asked and unrecused himself what rule or law would he have been violating? You said, Susan, he's required to recuse. By what is he required? So there are internal Department of Justice procedures and regulations that essentially say these are the circumstances under which somebody must recuse themselves. Um, and it's it's pretty broad. It's not just the that there's an actual conflict of interest. It's if any reasonable person could look at this and think that there was a conflict, then there's an obligation to recuse here. It's it's very broad. But it's a guideline. It's a departmental guideline. Right. So it's it's a guideline in the sense that the president of the United States could alter those guidelines. It's not a statute, um, but it is guidance that is treated as binding on all members of the Department of Justice, including the attorney general. OK, so basically what's at issue here is the president asking one of his cabinet officials to um, override normal procedure, agency procedure, in order to 
protect him politically, right? And on the face of it, in normal times, we would all look at that and say, that's outrageous. And I think one of the striking things about where we are at this point in the Trump presidency is that not only is it unsurprising that he did this, as Ben pointed out, but it is such standard practice in this administration that this is only one instance of probably a dozen that we could point to with other cabinet officials and other senior officials of the Trump administration where they are overriding normal agency procedures or federal procedures in order to politically advantage themselves, the president, or some you know specific constituent of the president. And, and that points to just the deep corruption, I don't know how else to say it, of the of the administration and the fact that 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 that's how bad it is i think means that this is you know not shocking news and it's not going to have much impact on public opinion but what i the other thing i think is revealing about it though is that this is coming after a number of weeks in which we've had a bunch of news reports about well Mueller's focusing in on money laundering and Mueller's focusing in on Manafort and agents of you know people acting on behalf of foreign governments and and now we're back to obstruction of justice and i think it's just a good reminder of a point that Ben you make very regularly which is that Mueller knows a lot more than the rest of us know, and none of us really know what he's focusing on. None of us really know what the thrust of this investigation is going to be at the end of the day. So I think that's all correct. But I also think that it is very clear that Mueller has spent a lot of energy on obstruction. And given the fact that the obstruction statutes are hard to quite parse how they interact with presidential behavior in an instance like this where he's supervising the executive branch. It's a really interesting puzzle what Mueller's theory of this case is. And because he's leaked so little, we actually really don't know the Mm -hmm. answer to that question. But here is why I think the Sessions aspect of this is really important. So before this, we had uh, the president trying to influence the investigator, i.e. Jim Comey. And we had him trying to, through McGahn, trying to influence Sessions not to recuse. Um, And we had him bullying both Sessions and Rod Rosenstein. Although once Sessions is recused... It's not really an obstruction of this investigation anymore because he's not in this investigation. But I think the and we have these interactions with Andy McCabe that are weird as hell and and quite disturbing. But I think the significance of this is that you now have him trying to get sessions personally, not through through McGann or through an intermediary, but personally lobbying sessions to get involved in the investigation on his behalf. And now that is the second senior leader or third, if you include Andy McCabe, whom he is now directly trying to influence his conduct with respect to the investigation. And so I think that begins to look like a pretty significant pattern. Should we feel good about the fact that all three of those people refused? It's better than the alternative, I suppose. <laughs> I, I mean, one thing is, look, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a legal theory. It might just be that Robert Mueller is going to produce one hell of a report to Congress and that and that he views his obligation not just to run, you know, not just to, to run down a, a particular legal theory that he feels really, really confident about, but instead to say, you know, this is this is within my mandate. This is within the area in which I've been asked to investigate. And I am going to gather every single relevant fact, whether or not it's 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 fits within a particular legal theory, because ultimately he knows that what's he, what he's going to do is hand it over to Congress to for the American people to decide. Although to the extent that he doesn't have a legal theory in which this violates a federal criminal law, he has no authority to investigate it at all. Oh, but I'm not saying he doesn't. He lacks a legal theory in which this violates a federal criminal law. I'm saying that uh, 
I don't think that it has to be a a fully developed theory that he's prepared to defend in court. I, I think he can actually write that there there clearly is is a criminal law there that might be violated. They can gather all the evidence and then see how the evidence fits in. And it's like I view the legal theory less as as a threshold question uh, in this case just be, just because of the because of the president. It also strikes me that this whole incident may reveal what a profoundly bad judge of character. Donald Trump actually is because underlying all of this lobbying to get Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself is Trump's assumption that if he unrecused himself, he'd shut down the investigation. And why does anybody just assume that Jeff Sessions would do that and shove his entire career down the toilet? Look, I don't know that I'm prepared to give Jeff Sessions his like profile and courage here. Like, he I made mean, the right decision in recusing himself. Well, he clearly is is wrapping himself in like this is DOJ protocol in part because he certainly can't unrecuse himself now. I mean, this would that would cause. Uh, such catastrophic consequences for his own career, you know. So I, not as bad that if he'd actually just shut the investigation down outright. Well, but let's remember this was really early. This was March 2017, and I think it's an interesting question. If if this were happening now, a year plus into the administration, when you know Trump's mo is much more clear everybody working for him is much more implicated and they've been living in this weird trumpian bubble would would sessions still be so wedded to normal procedure to whatever promises he made to the, his former colleagues in the senate who confirmed him the advice of the bureaucrats i mean this slippery slope that we've slid down it far enough that i'm not sure jeff sessions today would be the same as the jeff sessions a year ago well Time to get in the time machine. We will see. What's Kate McKinnon going to do if Jeff Session goes away? She says that's a great impression of him. She does, but she's... It's not really an impression. It's more like a manifestation of him as like a spirit animal. <laughs> <clears throat> a possum. She embodies him. Yeah. She has a very good Rudy Giuliani, though. Um... I got no transition here, by the way, no segue. So let's just let's move just on. jump. My, <laughs> jump in. My segue is downstairs. Oh, good. Let's hop on that and right into a conversation about Kirsten Nielsen. You remember her? She's Another the home- member of the cabinet. There She's you the long suffering. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's the long suffering Secretary of Homeland Security. Actually, not that long. That's yeah. true. <laughs> just suffering. Don't don't confuse the intensity of suffering with the duration. Right. Uh, so my colleagues, actually, uh, Josh Dossie and Nick Mirov at the Post, uh, had a great story. Uh, recently about these just incredible moments in which Nielsen is in the room and Trump is talking about her as if she's not there, about uh, how little he thinks of her, how weak she thinks she is, uh, and just absolutely frustrated that she is not enforcing immigration laws and border security policies in a way that helps him politically. And why is she not doing that? And and yet she is. And yet she is. And yet she is. (laughs) And in moments when she has to, uh, I guess, bite her tongue and explain to the president how immigration law works, um, that does not make him happy. That makes him rather upset. Um, So all of this is. Let's let's let's. We're going to talk about two things here. One is going to be. I want to talk a little bit about just this kind of extraordinary head to head between these two people, and then also kind of what's playing out with these immigration policies that the administration is enforcing that are extraordinary and I think many critics would say uh, harsh and unfair uh, and certainly unusual. Um, But Kirsten Nielsen obviously is, look, she is someone who uh, I don't think any would have been at the top of anyone's list of obvious candidates to lead the Department of Homeland Security. She wasn't, in fact, his first candidate to she lead the department. She wasn't his first candidate. I mean, she's a somewhat experienced staffer and a policy person, but who had no obvious managerial experience and appears to have been basically placed at the top of the list by John Kelly, uh, you know, her former secretary and her patron. Uh, I think it's fair to say, um, but appears to, I mean, from many accounts and even from some little bit of reporting I've done on this, trying to do an effective job uh, as secretary and also taking it very seriously her to do to explain to the president what immigration law actually is, what is actually possible at the border, why it is that they're seeing detentions or arrests of people trying to cross the border go up and that it has more to do with seasonal migration patterns and not with some kind of weakness within the department. Um, Susan, let me kick this to you. But I mean, you know, it strikes me that this is exactly probably what most cabinet secretaries are up against. It doesn't matter if you have the facts and the law on your side. If you're not pushing the policy in the direction that the president wants it to go, 
he seems to focus on her as everything that's wrong with the immigration system and sort of kind of, you know, like a laser just shove all of that criticism onto her. I think that's right. I mean, I think the one thing that it's it's important to note, because I, I do think it's important as a matter of, of, frankly, moral culpability here, in all of these news accounts about sort of the conflict between Nielsen and Trump, um, she is not objecting to policy here. And she is not objecting to policies that are... Um, morally problematic and also problematic as a security metric. Um, what she is essentially uh, appears to be objecting to, and, and I hesitate to say this because I think there's sort of a, there's a gendered way of, of, it's a gendered thing to think about, but it certainly has been present with, uh, with male cabinet members as well. She's mad that her boss is being mean to her about it, right? I'm trying my hardest to carry out these horrific policies that I'm completely on board with, as far as anyone can tell, but you aren't giving me sufficient credit for it. Um, so I think that is, it's worth taking a moment to just sort of pause and think about the implications that that is her defense or that's the defense that we're seeing sort of mounted in the press uh, even before we sort of move into okay what is the substance of these policies what are the implications and does it even make sense as a as a as a security issue not to mention the fact that this is a, a pretty clear and a strategic play on the part of the Trump administration to once again conflate illegal immigration and legal immigration, which has long been one of the uh, uglier aspects of their policies. So I, I think that's a really worthwhile point. And I think, you know, number one, it's clear that uh, you do not do well if in in this administration trying to explain things to the president. This is not a president that wants to hear people explain stuff to him. He's not interested in explanations. Um, and the people that we've seen succeed in winning his confidence are the people who are willing to put forward completely spurious, misleading arguments, framing things in a way that, that sound to him like a win for him, right? So if she had said to him, look, you know, this is about seasonal migration and so more people are coming. So we're, And because we're we're enforcing the law so well, we're arresting everybody. If she had instead sort of framed to him, arrests are going up because we're awesome, because we're so tough. Like she she probably would have gotten a lot Backing of credit. Backing them for up that, at the border. Right. So, you know, it it's it's clear that the way to win over this president is to be dishonest with him about the way government is operating rather than honest with him about the way the government is operating, which is a whole other layer of kind of terrifying. But then I think you get to your underlying point, Susan, which is that she's not objecting on the substance of this. We don't actually have a clear sense from the reporting of what her view is, what her substantive view is on any of this stuff. And Congress, I think, who has called her up, you know, hasn't actually managed to get a good handle on her views, um, which is also, I think, a, a bit of a failure of oversight. Uh, and so the result is that the argument over immigration enforcement and people coming across the border is all taking place within the frame that Trump wants it to take place in, which is all immigration is bad. Every stranger who comes into this country is a violation somehow of our our natural political community, which well, is the you know the populist playbook once again. And let's talk about some of these policies and the one that's getting the most attention in the past week. Uh, is this policy of uh, separating children from their parents when their parents both try to illegally enter the country and my understanding is in some circumstances are legally trying to enter the country uh, in this policy of separating them. Uh, and, and we can talk about the, the kind of the after effects that come with that. But Ben, this this is unusual. This is extraordinary. This is not something that has happened uh, in previous administrations. And this policy seems to be being uh, enforced without exception. Yeah. So there's a few elements here, and some of them, in my opinion, are more indefensible than others. So it has long been possible to prosecute people for illegal, illegally crossing the border. And it has been done relatively infrequently, generally for people who do it repeatedly, um, generally when you just illegally enter once you get deported and it's not a it's not something that you know gets treated as a criminal matter 
if you treat it as a criminal matter, uh, of course, when somebody's prosecuted for a crime and they are separated from their kids. So one thing that's going on is that the administration has decided to prosecute a lot more illegal entry cases. And that means that they are ending up separating parents from children. Now, I think one can describe that as simply a a byproduct of a decision to make criminal prosecutions more common or even norm. Um, but it is not true that no prior administration has criminally prosecuted people for unlawful entry. And in fact, um, it is, uh, you know, and I think there's a legitimate policy question, how aggressively do you want to use the tool of criminal prosecution for that? What is completely indefensible, in my view, is when people show up at the border legally. Like at a port of entry. Well, it's in this case, it's not a port. Of, it, it, it's actually at a at a border crossing right. and ask for refugee status or asylum status. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, not illegal. They may be illegally in Mexico. They're not illegally at the United States border. And to separate parents from children and normal. The rule is when somebody shows up and asks for asylum status, you uh, you're obliged to process their asylum claim. And the idea that you are going to separate parents from children while processing asylum claims is barbaric. And I don't think it has any place in our law or, or custom. And, I, and I'm unaware of any similar thing that any prior administration has done. I do think it is worth distinguishing between those, so, those two things. So I would actually... I I take that point and and I do think it's an important one but I there's a there's there are certain elements that are that I think it's it's not as important to distinguish and that's that the administration even though it's gone back and forth has pretty clearly articulated that this policy is intended to be a deterrent one yeah. and it's intended to be openly. deterrent in the exact same way so it's intended to deter parents from illegally crossing by saying we're going to separate you from their you from your children and it's intended to deter parents from legally crossing or, or, or claiming asylum, yeah. claiming status right so it's the same the the underlying punitive uh harming children in order to be punitive and deterrent that is the same in both places and so and so i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily separate those two things out you know it's another example of non-evidence based policy they're doing this because it fulfills a weird, sick, emotional assumption, which is, you know, what? You, well, we're going to take your kids away from you to to ensure that uh, that you really, really were persecuted, as opposed to saying we have evidence and we've conducted, we've uh, we've we we have a rational, uh, you know, policy here that that we're articulating and implementing. It's I've I've never seen any piece of evidence to to quantify or suggest how this might change the calculation between individuals who uh, are lawfully entitled to claim this status or, or are lawfully enti uh, entitled to prevail on the status versus individuals who are not in entitled to prevail on the status. You know, I, I think in that sense, the idea that you're creating, a, you're trying to create a very strong disincentive to people to come and claim asylum in the U.S. by making the process as miserable as possible, that's actually no different, sadly, than what a lot of European countries have been doing with the migrations from uh, Africa and the Middle East over the last several years, where they put people in horrific prison-like camps. Um, they have separated families, you know, or they have simply just put up uh, physical barriers so that people can't access the border to claim asylum. Um, all of this designed to deter people from coming. And we know it doesn't work. <laughs> we, there is lots of evidence that this does not, in fact, deter people from trying to reach safety when they are in dangerous circumstances. And that's what that's what asylee claims are about. These are people who are fleeing something horrible. And if it weren't horrible, they wouldn't be fleeing. So that's the first thing. But the, the other thing I understand about this 
um, kind of insistence on criminal prosecution that you were pointing to, Ben, is that it has an additional secondary effect on the children, um, which is that because the administration has this policy now of aggressive prosecution uh, and because there is uh, such a punitive approach to undocumented people or people with temporary protective status or dreamers or others who are here under non-sort of permanent status, um, these kids who are being separated from their parents uh, who are crossing illegally or kids who are being sent on their own, of, of, of whom there are many fewer now, as I understand it, but when these kids are um, taken into custody by DHS, they're supposed to be transferred uh, to another federal agency, which is responsible for finding them essentially a foster care placement. And in the past, these placements often used to be with family members, including sometimes back with their undocumented parents while their claims are being adjudicated. But because the federal government is being so aggressive with criminal prosecution, those family members aren't willing to come forward and make themselves known to the federal government and take these kids, which means that the kids are either ending up with strangers in very um, often uh, ugly foster care circumstances, or they're being warehoused uh, and not put being put into foster care at all. And so the prosecutorial focus of policy is having this additional deleterious effect on the kids that wasn't designed, but is very, very clear. Yeah. So I don't get me wrong. I am not defending an argue, a, a policy of generally prosecuting or insisting on, you know, prosecuting uh, people who cross the border illegally. I'm merely saying that Somebody who crosses the border illegally does so knowing that they're committing an infraction and is is assuming a certain degree of risk in doing that, of varying kinds, uh, legal risk. And no administration has taken the view that it will never prosecute under those circumstances. And so you're kind of in a department of how much you want to ratchet up the use of that authority. And by the way, that that question is true in the drug area. It's true in the guns area. It's true in every area of life where you have a choice of how aggressively you do or don't want to use criminal statutes. But and they're they're dialing it up to 11. No, here. They're, they're dialing it up to 11, knowing, and as Susan points out, rightly, I think, intending that the effect on kids will be a deterrent component of it. And right. I don't mean Not to... Not despite, because... Because. And I don't, I don't mean to defend that. All I mean to say is that that is different from saying that the cost of showing up at the border lawfully and lawfully availing yourself of, of the ability to apply for asylum means being separated from your church, from your child that strikes me as a different order of of impropriety impropriety is one word for it speaking of impropriety i used the word barbaric before <laughs> yeah speaking of barbaric <laughs> uh surprising no one <laughs> investigators determined this week that russia was the source of a missile that shot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 over Ukraine in 2014, killing nearly 300 people. Um, <clears throat> this may, I don't know if this is something that faded from the headlines for people or not, but this occurred at the point of not long after the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea and this sort of extraordinary moment where separatists were firing on this plane. I, I, I gather thinking that it was some kind of military aircraft and, you know, killed 300 civilians. Um this also arrives at a moment when we're seeing just extraordinary examples of Russian aggression and dastardly deeds uh, all around the world, from the poisoning uh, in Salisbury uh, to various assassinations of journalists, uh, including one that we were prepared to believe was real. The Ukraine, the Russian journalist uh, thought to be killed in Ukraine two days ago, Arkady Bobchenko, who apparently faked his own death. So because the U well the Ukrainian security services helped him fake his death to foil a Russian An actual assassination, Russian assassination plot. plot that they thought was actually the entire uh, Malaysian airline plane faked its own missiling right Ugh. yeah what? I mean this this really is becoming like a bad made for cable movie yeah right? I mean it's, it's just I guess I don't know if there's a question in this but I'll kind of give my reactions because I remember covering 
the <clears throat> the shoot down of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, and actually in this very extraordinary thing that's never happened in my career, um, which was that the director of National Intelligence Office called basically every intelligence reporter and most of the national security reporters in this city over to a briefing at which they laid out what they believed had happened. Uh, and, and, and you know, without coming right out and saying, you know, this was a Russian missile, basically saying there's no other missile it could have been. So Russia needs to explain how in the hell its missile got into the hands of separatists in Ukraine that are backing its military forces or at least allied with them. And I remember thinking what an extraordinary thing this was that in the year 2014, um, the Russian government was responsible for the mass murder of nearly 300 people over Europe <laughs> uh, and what should have been free skies. These people are getting on a plane, believing that, you know, they're going to go from one destination to another and just how extraordinary that was. And it strikes me that now four years later, it not that it pales in comparison. I don't want to put it that way because, you know, 300 people were killed, but it just seems completely unsurprising in keeping with now a pattern of just extraordinary belligerent uh, subversive behavior that we've come to expect from Russia. Right. So it's it's extraordinarily belligerent behavior that's been escalating from Russia for a number of years, you know, going back to the end of the George W. Bush administration and and the war in Georgia. Right. Um, but I think it's also just this sort of serial violation of norms um, so that, yeah, you're you're irresponsibly providing weapons to uh, non-state proxies if that's in fact what happened here, rather than, you know, some plainclothes Russian right. operator who shot down this plane. And possibly, by the way, helping them use the weapon. Right. I mean, this is another piece of this, too, is it's not merely supplying, but, I mean, the active coordination that has been documented, I think, between separatist forces and Russian, quote-unquote, military forces or little green men, however you want to look at them. Right. So, you know, you ha you have the the invasions themselves. You have the irresponsible provision, uh, the weapons proliferation. You have the assassination campaigns. You have the uh, interference into other countries' sovereign um, political processes and electoral processes. I mean, it's just a, a series of violations of norms that the Russians um, have been engaged in without... Without, not without pushback, but without any pushback that has deterred them from further such violations. And it's become such a pattern that when Babchenko, you know, was apparently shot, we all immediately said, oh, of course the of course Russians, Russians assassinated yeah. another critical journalist. Like, we were all completely ready to believe that. Um, and so, and so in a way, like, the fact that this turns out not to have been as it was originally presented. I, the Russians are jumping all over it and saying, see, you know, we really are law abiding. And how could you possibly accuse us of all these horrible things? Um, but the fact that we were all so ready to believe it is just evidence of how ingrained this pattern is. Yeah, I, I also think it sort of gets to, I don't know, like the er question of, of the Trump administration and uh, their fondness for Russians. A little bit it has, um, it's gotten overwhelmed by kind of the Lothair Rus. I'm finally just giving in to Ben and calling it that all the time now. Uh, it was uh, always good. But you the Mueller investigation stuff. I, I, I can't do this. Um, I take myself far too seriously. <laughs> You know, but, but look, it's that, you know, Trump has again and again talked about wanting to have this relationship, this this warmed relationship with Russia. Um, other past presidents have also tried for resets. What Trump has not articulated and frankly hasn't even tried to articulate is under what conditions does he want to have this relationship and how are American interests advanced by doing so? Because what he seems to be advocating for is turning a blind eye to all of this stuff. By the way, a huge point by which uh, congressional Republicans hammered the Obama administration for being insufficiently tough. Trump is now essentially saying like, well, whatever, I like Putin, he's a nice guy, no collusion, no collusion, and that's the end of it. And nobody appears to be forcing him or the Secretary of State or anyone else to articulate how, if it's America first here, 
how is America served by allowing this stuff to 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 continue without any sort of response whatsoever? And it seems to me, and I mean, and I'm sound like a broken record here, but this could be the responsibility of Congress to force him to articulate that, right? I mean, not unlike saying to Secretary Nielsen, what exactly are your views on the policies that you are enforcing for the administration? Right. And, you know, and we have seen some congressional action on Russia more than we've seen on a lot of other issues, um, whether it's, you know, the new sanctions that were passed uh, almost a year ago or the global Magnitsky um, and, you know, very belatedly the administration making some designations uh, under the, the those authorities for new sanctions. But Again, you know, I I think that there's a a sort of it's quite clear that Western democracies seeking to respond to these asymmetric forms of Russian belligerence have yet to land on a response that is impactful, that seems to actually deter Russian behavior in any meaningful way. We've expelled diplomats. We've imposed sanctions. We've used the bully pulpit. You know, we've reiterated our own um, collective defense mechanisms. You know, Trump, unbelievably, has supplied lethal aid to the Ukrainians. And none of this yet is deterring the Russians. And I think, you know, if the challenge that the U.S. and other Western democracies are facing beyond the sort of normative level about democracy, um, if, if the strategic challenge we're facing is an asymmetric one, you know, little green men or assassinations or poisonings or info war, we don't yet have an effective response. All right, before we move on to object lessons, stories we're not covering this week. Nothing's uh, the, going on. Nothing's going on. It's so boring. Nothing's going on. Uh, what might be going on is the U.S.-North Korea summit. Maybe back on. Those tr- challenge coins aren't so worthless after we'll all. Hear, won't he? We'll hear or won't Lee. What are we I thinking? Like, uh, well, I'm thinking that I liked uh, uh, John Lovett's suggestion that we take one of the challenge coins, cut it in half in a jagged thing, give half to Kim Jong-un and half to President Trump. <laughs> On a little necklace <laughs> yeah. that they can wear. Like one side says Bafra and the other says st- ends. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was inspired. That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, survey finds that most federal agencies' computer networks aren't properly secured. <laughs> no shit. No one. Boy, God, Evergreen Report. Uh, the death toll from the hurricane in Puerto Rico is well above 4,000 people, not the 64-some uh, that the federal government counted. That's according to a Harvard study. Yeah, talk about homeland security Jesus. failures. Yeah. I mean, my Appalling goodness. and appalling that it hasn't gotten any attention. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, well, here we well, are. Well, and also appalling that it requires a Harvard University study rather than that the official, and it takes, you know, many, many months rather than that we have a reasonable count in a reasonable period of time from official sources. <coughs> Congressional oversight. Uh, new elections in Italy may be a referendum on the future of the euro. Great timing. Let's yeah. do this again. Yeah, and like also this question of can they, is Italy now in the beginning of the 21st century going to have a populist government? Wow. It'll hold for like two days. It's about the that, that, that's the silver lining. The is enduring ties of xenophobia. Yeah. <laughs> it's like good French cheese. <laughs> Doesn't last very long. <laughs> I don't know who's good French cheese. Whatever. My Italian cheese lasts a long time, but longer than their governments. <laughs> All the Italians are going to be tweeting at me now. And Trey Gowdy says the FBI quote did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do in the Russia investigation by sending an informant against the Trump campaign. You know. Uh, Michael Kinsley, uh, when he was editor of the New Republic, uh, used to joke that maybe he would change the name of the New Republic to even the liberal New Republic, because conservatives always used to cite the New Republic as like, well, even they say that this policy from the Reagan administration is working. So I think Trey Gowdy should change his name to even Trey Gowdy. (laughs) Even Trey Gowdy thinks that Spygate is... Well, I, but let's just consider he's retiring in December, right? So what's his arc going to be between now and December? The endless quest for redemption. Mm, good luck, buddy. Trig, Audi. Uh, good luck, Mr. Benghazi. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Hey, don't leave Mike Pompeo out of that, Mr. Benghazi, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, ben has an object lesson. I have one, too. 
Ben, you want to go first? Yeah. So a few months ago, Shane did a loving object lesson about the movie The Post uh, and its uh, uh, portrayal of journalism uh, as particularly relevant in this period of time. And so I want to follow on that um, uh, about the Showtime series that um, uh, an old elementary school uh, classmate of mine uh, named Liz Garbus has done uh, called The Fourth Estate, which is a portrait of the first year of the Trump administration as covered by the New York Times. And uh, Liz got incredible access to the Times's newsroom and Washington bureau to the editorial leadership and to individual reporters who cooperated with uh, her film. And it is uh, one of the most incredible portrayals of the sort of process and, and craft of journalism that I've ever seen. And just at, at a time when the president and his uh, uh, minions are you know, deriding all of what I think of as real journalism as fake news uh, and denying the premise that they uh, newspapers have real sources. Uh, there's something very moving about a um, movie that actually shows re real reporters interacting uh, over real sources to bring real information to the public. And so... Uh, Move in over, James Bond. I want to. I just want to say that that pe people should watch it. It's four parts, uh, and it's a, a, a really riveting uh, piece of um, piece of cinema. But it's also topical and important right now. Uh, and um, yeah, so it's the Fourth Estate um, uh, on Showtime by Liz Garbus. My object lesson is a very exciting public service announcement from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, alert number I-052518. Oh, oh yeah, uh, that one. Foreign cyber actors target home and office routers. Mm -hmm. uh, the FBI is begging with you to please just unplug your router, start it again, uh, get rid of the foreign uh, malware, and uh, you know help your friendly neighborhood federal law enforcement yeah. out. Um, and and everyone should do it. So, so I, I did that. That was a, that was a really extraordinary PSA. Actually, it was very extraordinary. We did it at home. I we did it the other day. I, I did it the other day. I unplugged the router. But what I didn't notice when I unplugged the router was that I also inadvertently separated the uh, router's power supply from uh, the cable that went to the wall. So when I plugged it back in, it didn't restart, and uh, it took a number of hours to figure out why the router <laughs> wasn't working. Pants on the health. I was like, sir, have you checked if the router is plugged in? Is it plugged in? in? <laughs> um, I have an object, too. I have an, another movie. I promise we don't plan these ahead of time. Um, so I'm going to recommend a six-part Netflix documentary series uh, called Wild, Wild Country. Things, what? <laughs> you what? Said, who has time for these things? I found it. Uh, Wild Wild Country, which is the story with extraordinary interviews and archival footage of the religious group, uh, the Rajneeshis. Do you guys remember these? The Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, right. So this was this, uh, uh, I, some people would call him a cult leader. He would have called himself a, a religious leader uh, that moved in the early 1980s from an ashram in India to a uh, uh, tiny, tiny town in northern central Oregon called Antelope. As one does. As one does, and basically tried to build a city there. And I recommend this for two reasons. Um, well, I should say it resonated with me for two reasons. One, it is actually, I believe, it might be the first, if not certainly the biggest example of biological yep. terrorism uh, in the United States, which not spoiling anything, uh, wink, wink, spoil. Uh, but at one point, the Rajneeshis, it's not funny, but it, it works out okay, um, basically sprinkle salmonella all over various restaurants and salad bars in the town and when they get into this extraordinary feud uh, with the town. So uh, rational security listeners will find it interesting for that reason. Um, the second is I lived in Oregon when all of this was going on. You did, yeah. So this is happening like what? in the like in the like formative years of my childhood, when my parents were constantly talking about the Rajneeshis, and this was like a thing that was in 
the the public consciousness of Oregonians that this I mean tiny like nothing town of antelope and suddenly there's like thousands of these people in purple robes showing up and this dude with this long beard and they're all out there having sex and going crazy and talking about taking over the town government and as i'm watching this we're watching this show at home like all of these memories are flooding back over me about what a crazy time this was and my parents just like constantly talking about it it was just the thing that everyone discussed and i had no real concept at the time that it was a such a big national conversation and then b after 9-11 when i started reporting on homeland security i'd be talking to all these experts saying like well you may not be aware of this but there was an actual instance of biological terrorism with the rajneeshis and it was like let me tell you about the rajneeshis it even shows up in the book that Gabby Bloom and I wrote, yeah. The Future of Violence. It's, uh, it is such a good movie. And that's a good book, too. You should check it out. It's a passing reference. It's a passing reference. Um, but check it out, Wild Well Country. But do that now because the podcast is over. So Aww. run to Showtime. Run to Netflix. Run to your router first. Then unplug, <laughs> yeah, it. unplug your router. <laughs> Reboot it. Then watch it. Because otherwise, as you're watching the movies, the Russian malware will creep in over your router and spread to every computer That's in right. your house. Just yeah. like the Rajneeshis and Antelope. <laughs> <laughs> Lawfare <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. I'll get this right. You can find our show page somewhere in the annals of the Wayback Machine. Some, somewhere in, in, in Antelope, Oregon. Somewhere in Antelope, Oregon is our show page. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can follow us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. We appreciate that. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Back in the audio seat, Matt. Welcome back. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jeff Sessions featuring his new hit, Trump Tried to Make Me Unrecuse. And I said, no, no. <laughs> Wait, it's not a country song? <laughs> That's Amy Winehouse. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Tried to make me unrecuse. Sophia Yan would totally back up she Amy Winehouse, but she not Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Just going to say. Sophia Yan not recused. From not recused from nope. our music. But who's going to have big news coming up? She will. We'll talk about that next week. She can be an optimist. Yeah. On behalf of my good friends Benjamin Wittis, Mark Hoffman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 